hope everybody's super well. Super exciting uh, moment, definitely for my mom. I will be on GMA, Good Morning America, on September 18th, Friday morning, answering questions about the opportunity uh, going forward as we go into September, October, November, December, and into 2021. So if you've got any questions about your business, uh, about um, executiveship, about anything that might be on your mind, please make a video and reply to this tweet with your question and use the hashtag GaryVEE on GMA. Super honored to be on the show and super excited to answer some of your questions on Twitter, from Twitter, excuse me, on Good Morning America, September 18th. I'm looking forward to it. Fire your questions away. Thank you. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Hey everybody, it's Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, as many of you know, uh, for quite a while now, I haven't been doing too many interviews on the podcast, but I'm super excited to uh, break that pattern for a very special uh, uh, interview this morning uh, and uh, really just wishing everybody tremendous health and perseverance through this uh, challenging 2020 for a trillion different reasons. And I'm really excited because uh, I know the feeling of having a new book out uh, six times, five in the business sector, one in the wine sector. And and I'm really, really excited to have this uh, wonderful guest with us uh, this morning. Guy, uh, why don't you tell everybody a, a little bit about yourself, then we'll get into the book and then we'll shoot the uh, shit in the macro. Uh, but first of all, Guy, how are you? Guy Raz is with us this morning. Um, thanks, Gary. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fine. You know, I think as you said, uh, it's weird because my, my general kind of disposition is to be optimistic and positive and it's, it's a grind to do that in 2020. 2020 is challenged, I think, um, a lot of us to <laughs> to get up in the morning and to you know fight another day um but in general you know i'm 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 doing fine you know i've got Good. i've got um great kids and 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 wife and i'm we're really lucky you know we've been we've been okay um so for for those who you know who don't know who i am i'm the host of how i built this um it's a show i created 4 years ago i've been in broadcasting my whole career um i started out as an intern at npr in the mid 90s and even before that guy, what about like, before we even get into the professional oh, aspect, sure. just since we have a little bit of time, it'll be fun. Where'd you grow up? What kind of kid were you? Oh, what yeah. was the sibling situation, if any? Like, give, sure. us, the, give us the comic book one sure. uh, story. Chapter one, yeah. Um, I grew up in, in the San Fernando Valley in Los okay. Angeles, actually. Yeah. Um, I have uh, two older sisters and a younger brother. Um, my dad- so Number three of four. Number three of four. My dad um, was an engineer and my mom was a teacher. And at the age of 41, my dad decided to um, start his own business. So he started wow. a, a pearl store. He still sold pearls with my mom. Um, and I, that was my first sort of taste of entrepreneurship. How, how old were you when he was 41? I was, I think I was maybe six, seven years old. Okay. Yeah. So you really kind of at some level mainly remember him as an entrepreneur. I do. And yeah. I remember him um, cold calling people and going door to door in downtown LA trying to sell pearls <laughs> um, at the age of 41, you know, with three kids at the time. Do you, have any, do you have any sense of what got him going on pearls? Well, we lived in Japan. My dad was an engineer. Oh, and worked for, yeah, um, he worked for a freight company called Flying Tigers, which was then purchased by FedEx. And while he was in Japan, he met um, uh, a guy there who was like, hey, you should go to LA. I've got a pearl company here. 
and you should, you know, I can be your supplier and you should start a, a pearl store there. So that's really how it happened. He had no, he had no background in pearls. He didn't really, he, he spent years learning about them and became an expert actually. He's retired today um, and became a gemologist. But that was his beginning. He started this little pearl store in downtown LA and that's how he sustained his family for the rest of his life. Was entrepreneurship something that was in the family from either your mother or dad's side, grandparents, great grandparents for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think like like a lot of people with my background, you know, my 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 family comes from Eastern Europe and, right. and many of them ended up not surviving the Holocaust. Right. Um, the ones who did survive um, kind of had to had to be reborn. I mean, they were they grew up at a time where um, you know, they were, my grandmother was a nurse. My grandfather was a plumber. Um, you know, that, that was, did they, were they born in the old country? I don't know if you know this, but I was born in the Soviet Union. Yeah, I know. I know. So, yeah, I know. So I always resonate with these stories, but I always tell my friends and contemporaries, you know, I'm far more like your grandfather than I am like you yes. because I came over on the boat in the seventies, which was rare, but a lot of these families came over in twenties, thirties, forties. My grandfather was a, um, he, 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 grew up in Ukraine. Um, and he was basically, um, he was sent to prison by, by this, by the, by the communists, by the Soviets, because when he was a student, um, he was, it was, uh, the, the book by Theodore Herzl was found, uh, which was the, uh, it was called the, the Jewish state was found in his, in his room. My grandfather was not a Zionist. He didn't really know much about it. He wasn't mm -hmm. interested in it, but his, he was set up. So he mm. went to Siberia for three years, actually, to a prison camp. And when he got out, he left. Got it. Um, and that was sort of this, the beginning of. <laughs> and, and, and that was your dad's dad? That was my mom's dad, yeah. Your mom's dad, excuse me. And your dad's dad? Your dad's family? Similar. Also from, you know, most most Jews um, of European descent were come from this area called the Pale of Settlement, which is sort of between the German Empire and the Russian Empire. Yes. They were forced to live there, actually. And so um, most Jews of European descent can trace their lineage to, to, to the people that who lived there. And many of them were extremely poor. I mean, they lived in in shuttles in, in the original yeah. ghettos. And, yeah. um, uh, and, and so they weren't, you know, educated, um, cultured people. I mean, they were working- Grinders. Grinders, yes. Was edu for that reason, the modern second, third generation in the US very pushed on education. Yes. Was that a big, you know, and oh, and then your mom's a teacher. So are you, are you hearing that propaganda as a kid? Like get a good, go to a great college, go to a great yes. college, go to a great, how old I'm, are you guys? I'm 45. Right. So say I turned 45 in November. So same age group like that. You know, I, I, someone who became kind of a public entrepreneur, I try to tell a lot of 20 year olds, you don't understand. This is the era where entrepreneurship is cool. I was actually a bad right. student, a great entrepreneur, but every teacher and friend's parent thought I was gonna be a loser. That's how much the brand of good college dominated yes. the 70s and 80s. Yes, and 90s, yeah. Yes, and 90s. I, I agree, and and uh, and I think that that brand of, 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 of prestigious colleges is really waning and will continue to wane. And I think about this a lot as I save the money in my kids' 529 plans, often yep. wondering, what is this going to be for? Well, it's a funny conversation, Guy, because in parallel, I also think you're seeing the vulnerability of the entrepreneurial brand because everyone's doing it, but it's a talent. It's like everyone deciding they're going to be an NBA player. It is actually very difficult to be a successful, sustainable entrepreneur. 
Um, and I actually think the brand of entrepreneurship has gotten a little bit more like fratty, clubby, cool, like or trying to be cool. It, it's actually lost a little bit of its luster as well. So now you've got these two dynamics where both are going through an interesting transformation. It'll be interesting to see what evolves from that. You know, um, I really think that we need to work on redefining what it means to be an entrepreneur. Actually, taking it back to what it actually really means because my grandfather was an entrepreneur. He was a plumber. He yeah. employed two people, right? right? My dad was an entrepreneur. He had a jewelry store in downtown LA selling pearls and my mother was worked with him and he had two employees. That's, that's, I mean, the person who runs the corner grocery store here in Oakland where I am is a successful entrepreneur, actually more profitable than Uber. Well, it's funny. It's, it's funny when, you know, there's a video of me on the internet on an early Bloomberg TV episode of a show that was focusing on tech stars very early on in this web 2.0 bubble. And there's like eight, it's almost like a last episode of real world where there's eight companies that went through the show and Fred Wilson and all, you know, a lot of people are sitting there with me on the panel kind of recapping the season and every company gets up and they, and they kind of talk about what's happened since the show and eight of the nine companies end with, and we've raised $3 million you know, and the crowd goes crazy. And then finally, one company goes up and says, well, we haven't raised any money. We've actually been able to get clients. And guy, I'm not kidding, dead silence. I grab the mic and I go, this is what's wrong. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm like, we're cheering, giving up a piece of your business and losing money and we're staying silent for people that have actually executed entrepreneurship. A thousand percent. And I talk about this in my book. I mean, I, I, I am a huge, huge believer in bootstrapping. And I'm a huge believer in, in trying to, if you're, if you are seeking out money, you know, trying to seek it out from individuals and institutional family, you know, foundational investors, not venture capitalists or private equity, because I think you're exactly right. You know, we, we, we think that success is raising a lot of money. Now, look, raising a lot of money is really hard. It's hard to do. You've got to convince people that you've got a great product. And it's certainly- so, guy, I, Would you agree with me? And I'm sorry to cut you off. Would you agree with me that the thing we maybe didn't understand as well a half decade ago that's becoming more obvious is just how much money's in the system, how much money's actually being printed, where some of these money are coming from, whether it's Saudi or SoftBank or things like that. Like, there, there is a little bit more of an understanding that, wait yeah. a minute, and then you also had the phenomenon of Instagram, Facebook, and others where you had your corner entrepreneur that was in her or his 50s, 60s, 70s getting excited about writing a $50,000 check into their son's best friend because they were looking for their lottery ticket as the right. brand that these startups happened. Yes? Yes. Mm -hmm. And. And, and you know the reality is, as you as you point out, I mean, there is. It's estimated there's more than a trillion dollars of unspent cash sitting in in investors' bank accounts in the United States alone. Right? <laughs> there is an insane amount of money out there, and and what happens is, is when you know venture capital firms make a bet and make a lot of money, people sort of say, "Wow, look how brilliant they were! How for you know how much foresight they they had." But the reality is that. You know they're putting they're putting their chips on every single number on that roulette table, every single number, and, and getting paid and getting paid to do it, and getting paid to do it. And by the way, 
a percentage paid for everybody who doesn't know, two and 20, you're getting 2% management fee, which incentivizes you to raise as much money as humanly possible because now you're making, I, listen guy, I, you know, this is a story I don't talk a lot about. After I invested in Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, made my name in that web 2.0 sphere, before I started VaynerMedia, I had crazy money from billionaires and family offices uh, thinking that I had the golden touch and had an opportunity to make millions of dollars a year just taking meetings and getting 20% of the upside and chose to start an agency because I realized I would be more happy being an operator than an investor. Yeah. I I mean, I think that makes a thousand percent sense to me. You know, I I, I often talk about this and I love that you're bringing this up because I I often talk about, about what it means to be an entrepreneur. And it's not about going out and becoming the next Airbnb or the next Uber. That's not what it's about. It's about building something that solves a problem that you have and other people have. And 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 trying to make a contribution in some way to the world. It doesn't mean you're gonna save the world. It doesn't mean that your product or brand is gonna radically transform it, but if it improves something about it in some way, that is, more meaningful than anything that that almost anything I can think of, you know, and 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 so being an entrepreneur, building something, creating a product or service, is not it's it's not about scale, it's not about billions, it's about building something that uh, and allows you to to have a, a sustainable, good, interesting life, In- including things that seem out of fashion, which is like the trickle down on your local economy, aspiring your your child's best friend to do it as well, giving back to the community by donating a bench or a park or even you know, some wine for the uh, local kind of PTA. Let's go back to you a little bit here. So you're growing up in this environment, school, 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 and what kind of kid are you? Are you a bookworm kid? Are you a sports kid? Do you have some entrepreneurial DNA? Like how did you play out that childhood? Yeah, I mean as a kid, I mean like a lot of kids, I always loved, um, you know, garage sales and um and and car washing cars for money and doing oh, so you were very entrepreneurial doing lemonade stands um yeah i mean from the age of my thir- first job at age 13 was working at an ampm mini market the arco station around the corner where i loved doing full service because i'd get tips for right. filling up people's cars and washing their windows i mean it was awesome i always worked you know and, and this is a by the way this is also a different thing i think when we were younger than than it is now when we were younger, every kid I knew had a job. Every teenager had a job because that's how you made money. Today, it's different. I think kids do a lot of activities and are kind of overscheduled. And I'm not, I don't want to say this is better. Yeah, than yeah, worse, listen, but- and by the way, you're, you're talking general trends. Obviously, there's a million families listening right now that have a 15-year-old working. Great. And yeah, obviously, exactly. and by the way, to your point, it also matters what neighborhood you're growing up in. That's right. To your point, upper middle class and above, scheduled on 73 different activities. Lower right. middle class and below, you've got a lot of people working minimum wage jobs. That's right, exactly. Um, and as a kid, I, I loved I loved that autonomy. You know, I loved being able to do that. I, I, I was really into sports. I loved playing sports. I loved playing all sports. Um, I was pretty good at tennis, but um, you know, I wouldn't say I was a bookworm. I mean, I was a good student. Um, I wasn't like the greatest student, um, but I was, I, was, I was pretty good. Did you have an aspirational college in like early high school? You know, here, here's the thing. I didn't, my parents emphasized education, but they weren't really focused on like prestige education. Got it. They, didn't, know, care, they, were, they didn't care about status. They no. cared about you being grounded yeah. in it, but you didn't need to go somewhere so they could put a bumper no. sticker and, and 
they could be, you know, cloud chasing with that level. Got it. Not at all. And they weren't, they, it was not, that was not part of the discourse in my house. I mean, they would be happy if I went to any state university in California. You know, I, as a kid, I was also really in our family, we were, we, we talked about current events. I was really interested in politics. I mean, I was a really, I was really passionate about politics. And so um, one of the cool things that, that happened to me was um, when I was 16, I actually went to Washington, D.C. for the school year to be a congressional page. This is a program wow. that doesn't exist anymore. Um, it was it was stopped in the early 2000s. But but every year, 60 high school juniors would go to Washington, D.C. and work on the floor of the House of Representatives. That's and and I got this opportunity through my congressman to be a page. And that was transformational. You know, I I. It was an amazing experience to be there as a kid and also to meet kids from all over the country, from around the world, from around the country who were, you know, from Christian back, super Christian backgrounds and very conservative backgrounds. And, you know, I came from a house that had sort of mixed politics. My mom was a Republican. My dad was a Democrat. I was always as a kid I'm, when I was very young, I was like my mom. I sort of was really into Republican politics when I get got into high school. I was really interested in, in the Democrats and I loved- Well, I mean, we're the exact same age. So like, you know, it, it's very easy to think about Reagan and Clinton yes. for me. And I was also very, very interested. And I, you know, I was also born in the Soviet Union. So right. I'm catching, in my early years, I'm catching cold world dynamics. Yeah. And, you know, I also had a lot of interest, played tennis, did garage selling. So I didn't realize how similar we were, yeah. uh, which is really neat. Brothers so, from another mother. I love it. I love it. So yeah. you, so that makes sense to me where you're going with your, you know, for in my family, Reagan was huge because yeah. we had made our American dream during that time. He gets that credit for me as I got older, you know, Clinton was cool and progressive yeah. And, yeah. and socially about the things I was about. So it made sense. Yeah, exactly. And that was, that was sort of my, you know, my kind of life. And, and I went off to college and really, I think my plan was um, to do something in public service, either in journalism or in politics. I was always, also really interested in that. In, in high school, I did the student newspaper, and then in college, I did too. So I was all I was already kind of. What state did you go to college in? Massachusetts. And then what? And then um, after college, I looked around for newspaper jobs, and I couldn't find I couldn't get one. You know, because at that time, I mean, this is now the, the mid nineties. Ninety seven, you graduated, or ninety eight? Ninety six, I graduated 96. college. If you were um, like an ambitious journalist at the time, you would want to work for a newspaper. So trying to get a job at a place like the Baltimore Sun or the Star Ledger in Newark or the the Boston Globe was impossible. Like they 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 took like Harvard and Princeton and, and Yale graduates. You know, I could not get a job at any of those places. So I actually stumbled into an internship at NPR when I was 22 or 21, I think. Um, and that was, I mean, I didn't grow up in an NPR household. My parents had never heard of it. They didn't know what it was. Um, they thought I was working at a radio station. I first heard it in college. I just like tuned the dial and I heard the I heard car talk and I was like, what is this? This is so crazy. This is so good. I love this. I want to have like a potluck dinner with these guys. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of, and I discovered that they didn't actually work at NPR in Washington, <laughs> but, um, but that's how I, I got into to journalism and that's how it happened. And, and that's kind of like you got into in that world and kind of stayed in it? Got into that world. And that was sort of my career for the next, you know, sort of 15 years. I, I 
started out um, as an intern and at night I was writing articles for the Washington City paper in Washington DC. This was a time when alternative weeklies really mattered. Big time. And yes, I mean, this was like, you know, the editor of that paper was a guy named David Carr who went on to become a legendary journalist on his own. Like Jake Tapper is on CNN now as a writer. Ta-Nehisi Coates, the great, you know, like intellectual writer was, a, I mean, it's an amazing group of people. So that's where I really kind of cut my teeth and then eventually became a reporter for NPR and very early in my career had a chance to go overseas. So I spent almost six and a half years overseas um, covering, eventually it ended up covering war and conflict, which wasn't my intention. But but after 9-11, you know, many people who were foreign correspondents became war correspondents. That's right. Where where'd you live? I was posted in Berlin, I was posted in Jerusalem, and I was posted in London, but I really didn't live in those places much. I was usually on the road. You know, when I was in London, I was in Iraq all the time, or Afghanistan. When I was in Jerusalem, I was in the West Bank or in Gaza or, you know, covering that conflict. Um, so it was a pretty amazing, incredible experience that I, you know- Was your family it, scared for your, for your well-being? Um, yes, they were. They were. But, you know, it was a different time in my life. You know, I was younger. I didn't have kids. Um, my now wife was my then girlfriend. Um, and, you know, she, she I mean, I, I for for two of those seven years overseas, I actually was a television correspondent. I worked for CNN. I was I was poached by CNN. And then I went back to, to work for NPR for a few more years. Um, and my wife saw me on television in Iraq. In, with like those night vision goggles of just like tracer fire going around all over me. <laughs> she was freaking out. You know, she was watching this from, from, from London on, on TV. But, um, but that, yeah, I mean, it was a chapter in my life and a really important and powerful and profound part of my life. How, how did, you know, this new show, which is now a book four years ago, how did that start? Well, I, um, I became a news anchor at NPR um, eventually hosted all things considered on the weekend. And, and then I left the new side of things um, to start a new show called the Ted radio hour, which was a collaboration that I did with Ted talks. Um, and that was just an amazing experience. Um, meantime, in my head, I always had this idea for how I built this and, and here's where it actually came from. So I'll go back in time for a bit. Um, in 2007, I, I was back at NPR. And I really wanted to be a host of a show. I wanted to be the host of a of an evening news show or one of the news shows. And at the time, the executives in charge of deciding who could become a host determined that I did not have the qualities to be a host, that I didn't have the personality to be an NPR host, This that I was a war correspondent and that I wasn't, I didn't have the talent for it. And it was crushing, you know, and, and, and at that time, I began to think that maybe this wasn't the right profession for me, that I needed to find something new to do with my life. So I really kind of flailed and searched around and I very luckily landed on an opportunity to do a fellowship. I applied for a fellowship. I apologize for a second. Sure. Did you understand that that was literally a subjective opinion of a couple human beings and quantify no. that? No, no right? not at the time. That's why I wanted to jump in no. right now because I know somebody's listening right now yeah. and I think you can really help somebody right now because I think what has absolutely worked for me in happiness has been when these things happen, that doesn't mean the universe took a poll and said 80% of, it was 
the subjective opinion. Yes. And by the way, a lot of times when you're dynamic or have some skills, you're actually scary to the establishment, which leads to them not seeing it. I think that's right. Um, and, and I appreciate that you paused to ask about this because you're right, it is important. It took me a long time in my life to, to come to that realization. Now in my mid 40s, it's easier for me to see to see it that way. But you know, when I was in my early 30s, you know, 30, 31, it was very hard to see it that way. A respected executive with experience telling you you don't have what it takes, it means something. And you mm -hmm. believe that. And it and and I wish I could go back and tell my 30 something, you know, 30, 31 year old self, hey, it's fine. You got this. Keep keep on it. In 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 many ways, I needed that kick in the butt though. I mean did I you, did you get rejected from any of the colleges that you applied to? I got rejected from many colleges and I got rejected from many jobs. Okay. You know, and over the course of my career, which I can talk about in depth. Um was, was do you feel like that was easier because that was systematic and you understood that, whereas this one was a little bit more like you thought that person really knew? Yeah. And, yeah, and it happened a few years later. It happened. It happened a few years later. I mean, I, I, in in 2011, my dream was to be the the, the main host and anchor of All Things Considered during the week, mm -hmm. and I wasn't picked for that. They they decided that I wasn't the right person for that job, and I was crushed. You know, I thought this is kind of the end of my career. That was only in 2011. You know, and that. But but the thing is, is that those two pivotal moments forced me to kind of reimagine and. Take, try to take control over my career. So in 2007, when I was told I wasn't really capable of being a, a host of a show, I looked around to figure out how to transition. I found this fellowship for journalists. It was called the Neiman Fellowship. I did it for a year, and that year was transformational. Um, I got to spend a year at Harvard, which is all paid for. I got to take classes at Harvard Business School. And it was during that year, actually, where I took a class at, at, at the business school and was blown away because, do you know, the way I thought that business school was like charts and graphs and abstract ideas, the way they teach business school is through the case study method. I'd never heard of it before. It's basically stories. And I was blown away. Like the first day I went to a class, we were handed this case study about Howard Schultz and Starbucks. And I thought, oh my God, this is, these are heroes' journey, these are stories that can be told. And I kind of filed that in my, in my mind to kind of return to later on. Um, and then 2011, what happened when I didn't get that job I wanted, it really forced me to rethink what I wanted to do with my career. And at that time, I began to collaborate with Ted as you know, the Ted Talks people to start the show Ted Radio Hour and a podcast. And by the way, at the time, I was on the radio. And all of my colleagues on the radio were like, you're leaving the radio to do a what? A podcast? Who listens to those? No things? different than people leaving newspaper to go to blogs. That's right. It, what is, or, or executives in Hollywood. I had friends, I encouraged friends five, six, seven, eight years ago in Hollywood land to go to Netflix. Yeah. And many of them did not because they, because of the perceived step back. Right. And they learned their lesson that if you're thoughtful and you can see the tea leaves, often the step back is the three steps forward. That's right. And I was nervous too. I was like, maybe I am crazy, you know, leaving, this is 2012, you know, leaving radio. But the adversity had forced you into a framework that allowed you to be a little bit more comfortable with it. Like those micro losses put you in the mindset and the context to, to make that move. I had to, 
I didn't yeah. have, I had nothing, I had no other choice really. I didn't, there was no horizon for me in the, using the traditional path. So I started this podcast and it, you know, it really blew up. I mean, we kind of rode a wave of, of the kind of the podcast boom. And that's really what led me into, you know, a completely different phase of my career where, you know, I eventually started a production company and then I started another production company and I made a kid's show with, I, we, we've got a kid's production company and then I, you know, we do how I built this. And, um, and, and so all those failures along the road were actually meant to happen. You know, they were meant, they were, you know, I'm not a believer and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I respect people who believe, but I'm not, but I, I do. So part of me is like, some things are just meant to happen, you know, and, and, those setbacks, which were really hard. I mean, I remember a lot of like sleepless nights and a lot of just like feeling really bad about it. Do, do you think they're meant to happen or do you think they, well, there, there's a way to think about it. I, I, when, when you just said that, I'm like, they're meant to happen to every single person that's listening right now and every single person that lives on earth. And one's perspective and what they do with that, the serendipity of their DNA of optimism versus pessimism, the naturing and nurturing environment they live in, parent dynamics, the neighborhood. They go into this place where, you know, ev like it's amazing to me what I think about, like how romantic I am about adversity. I would yeah. actually argue that the biggest challenge I have at 45 right now is, do I make it harder on myself in professional success because I actually enjoy it so much. The actual adversity, the slowing down of the inevitable, the process so much. Do you feel like they were meant to happen or do you feel like they inevitably happen everywhere and the framework one is in mentally enables them to see the positive or to start to dwell and think about systematic issues or blaming parents, like the game of dwelling versus opportunity? I think that it's very natural for humans to to dwell. I think I think instinctively most of us, when we are faced with adversity at certain points in our life, um, it's 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 natural for us to feel really bad about it and to try and explain it. And I think over time, the way you explain those things to yourself changes, right? And so now, and really, the only way to figure out how to confront adversity is to experience it again and again and again, right? It's like any kind of muscle. You just get better at it over time. Do you, I'm sorry to interrupt because I'm passionate about this. One of my great fears was the demonization of losing. Yeah. That parents, modern parenting, again, generalizing, modern parenting has created, we've demonized losing. Kids watch parents fight coaches and parents excuse me, and teachers on behalf of their kids when they're faced with adversity. Right. We've demonized it so much in the last chapter, still kind of now, though there is an undercurrent of changing it a little bit, but I do feel a lot of cliche 20, you know, 18 to 25 right now struggle because they were put in a cocoon that really demonized losing in a world where repetition of it really does lead to happiness, thoughts? You know, Gary, I think I have a theory about this. Okay. So I'm sure you've come across a lot of 18 to 25 year olds or maybe 18 to 30 year olds who suffer from anxiety and depression, right? For a variety of reasons. And the truth is, is that I did too. When I was in my, my 20s, um, I experienced really like um, 
debilitating depression, something I'd never experienced ever before in my life. And by the way, I was on the fast track to a quote unquote successful career as a young reporter at NPR, but I had so much anxiety and fear about the future and about whether I was going to make it. And, and I couldn't talk about it with my parents because I didn't come from that kind of culture when my right. parents talked about depression. They, they thought mental health was for crazy people, right? Which was a normal way to think about it in the 80s and 90s. I, I don't want to blame them, but that's how people thought about it. And I so realized you, you, with time, you know. You believe, you believe this is a stigma issue and much like other things we've talked about in society, this has been a continuum. It just, thank God, we're in a place now where we can talk about it more openly. And, and here's what I think. I don't necessarily think young people are any different than we were, Gen Xers I, were. I agree I, with you. I don't think they're any different. Actually, I think they're better. I think they're more inspiring. I think they're more, they want to take take on the world in a more inspiring way. I think here's they are more inspiring and inclusive and open and woke and all those things. I do think that losing was demonized for them in a way that it wasn't for us. I think I think that part may be true, but I think the fundamentals are the same, which is think about it. Your whole life, there for most young people, there's a track. You know, you go from first grade to second grade, and then you go to middle school and then high school. And then if you're lucky, you go to college and people are cheering you on. They're saying, you got this and you know what's coming up next. And then a lot of people go to college and they develop their identity there. They might get involved in sports or they might they might you know, they might organize a rally or a concert or they're in the newspaper and they have an identity and then they graduate and everyone's like, yes, you got this, you got this. And then they, 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 they start life and the safety net's gone. They don't know what's coming next year. Add to that all of this research we now have about the human brain. We know the human brain continues to develop that that your executive, your prefrontal cortex continues to develop until age 30. So there's a slosh of things going on in your head at the same time, you're starting life out, there's no safety net and you don't know what, you know, you're not going to grade 13. You're not going to the next year of college. So it makes a lot of sense to me that young people, you know, people in their 20s are, you know, are there's they're so susceptible to being anxious and depressed because of all these things happening. And I think really, the, to me, the, the problem is we don't talk about it enough. We don't, and they don't talk about it enough. I, I think there's some real validity to that. I really do. Let's. Uh, I don't want to run out of time because I'm enjoying too much the combo. Let's get into the book quickly. The 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 show. You know, it, it was an instant hit. Uh, you know, I admired it so much from afar. We haven't had a chance to really connect, so I'm glad I get to say that to you publicly. You. Uh, and then and then the transition in, into a book and how you think about that for you. Now that I have a good sense of your context, I'm sure it's a pretty epic moment. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the the show we started it four years ago, um, and first episode. The first episode was Sarah Blakely. I love it. What a great choice! And um, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful episode. And you know what I what I and I think you get this a lot too, Gary. Which is like, for a lot of people who watch your your videos or who listen to your podcast or who follow you on social media, you are their MBA. Like you are their free MBA, right? And a lot of people will say that to you. And a lot of people say that to us too. And it's actually an amazing thing to hear because I, I, I believe that through the stories and the experiences and the lessons of, and, and the granular grind Detail. details yeah. that you get from people like Howard Schultz or Sarah Blakely or Tony Shea or any of the people we've had on the show, you learn 
what to do and what not to do. And it's funny, going back to your Harvard HBS, which is the apex of that storytelling format and then the serendipity of the people that are part of your class. If you think about it, you're putting out these stories in a very dynamic, modern way and your quote unquote class oftentimes are the people that you're conversating with on the internet about the episode on Twitter or Instagram or things of that nature. Yeah, I'm not as good as you are at those things. I'm <laughs> pitifully <laughs> horrible at it. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that's right. And I, I really wanted the show as I, as I came to understand that that's what the show meant to people. I wanted the book to do that as well. I wanted it to be a place that people could go to not only to kind of have a framework, a general framework for how to think about starting a business and all of the steps that it takes, but also just um, if you if you are interested in in creating a disruptive idea inside of your business, inside of the company you're at. You know, I wanted to create a book that was full of stories that gave people kind of a mental architecture and framework for how to think creatively and how to kind of unleash their creativity. Because I actually, and, and you may disagree with this, and this may be a controversial thing, but I, I think there are some entrepreneurs who are born. I think you you were born an entrepreneur for sure. But I do think it's th that most of the traits of entrepreneurs are learned, can be learned. You know what's funny? Uh, people always have me mistaken on this. I view it no different than tennis, skiing, yes. cooking. I, I could be much, much, much better at tennis than I am right now if I put in the work. Yeah. I don't believe that I was meant to be Novak Djokovic. Right. And I think you made a very important point earlier that I've been fighting for in different creative ways of communication, which is, hey, you're not, it's unlikely that you're going to build Spanx or Zappos, or Uber, or Facebook, or what have you. However, isn't it remarkable to build a business that your family can live on yes. and you love doing it? No different than I yes. am not destined to be Joker, but yes. nothing is more fun than to hack around a tennis ball with my buddies on a weekend in the summer. So to me, I wish entrepreneurship, I think all-time entrepreneurships, Beyonce, LeBron, Sarah Blakely, Serena Williams, I, yeah, I think that's a born dynamic with work put into it. I think yes. there's a lot of people, right? I think Carol Smith-Thompson could have been the greatest tennis player of all time. She didn't put in the work or even become aware that the skill was in her. So it goes both ways, but I'm with you, Guy. I do yeah. think that, to your point, do I believe somebody listening right now who's an upper middle management executive who loves listening, who has entrepreneurial tendencies, could buy your book, get inspired because they learn in book form more than listening to me on my podcast, and then bring a singular move or an insight that starts a spark within the org that moves it a half a mile down the field? I believe that the most because I'm an operator. I, yeah, I mean, I couldn't have put it better. You know, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, I, I think- Let me know if you need the forward for the next one. I'll be yes, ready. Yes, <laughs> you are writing the forward for the next book. It's going to say with Gary Vaynerchuk at the bottom of that. No, but, I, but, I, but I'm glad you brought it up and I think it was a fair way to put controversy. And by the way, I've, I've made the mistake through my career of speaking in sound bites without clarity where, you know, I'm sure there's videos where I'm like, where somebody's like, you know, 10 quick questions at the end, Gary. Entrepreneurship, born or taught? I'm like, born, because I'm speaking about it in the framework. And yeah, exactly. But I, I believe everybody, look, I believe fear. The ability to have a relationship with fear is 100% the trait that talks about your ladder of entrepreneurship. Yes. My stomach for being wrong is so big that I'm able to be very entrepreneurial. Other yeah. people, 
making a mistake in a meeting in a company by reading your book and one little thing petrifies yes. them. Can I, can I build on that? Because I think that's exactly right. People ask, ask me, they'll say, what is the one trait that all the people in your show, you know, that you've interviewed or in the book have in common? And people expect to hear, oh, they're resilient. Oh, they're optimistic. Oh, you know, the, these kinds of things. The, the reality is that they all have the ability to withstand rejection. So it's, it's, it's similar. It's, it's, it's in the uh -huh. same side of uh, other side of the coin of fear, right? Which is that if you go to somebody and you say, hey, Gary, I have this great idea. It's this product. We're naturally, we naturally want validation. We want people to say, that's awesome. Go do it. But we're really scared of hearing people say, ah, oh, that sucks. Who's going to buy that? That's a dumb idea. And, and that is actually what stops most people from pursuing their ideas or, you know, going to, to, to 10 people to, to raise money or, or going to friends and family to ask for support and, and hearing no, 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 no. I'll tell you a quick story, which is I've had, and this is very, very interesting. I've had a, a fair number of Mormon entrepreneurs on the show. David Nealman, Joel uh, Clark of Kodiak Cakes, yep. David uh, Smith of Cotopaxi and others. And to a person, they will all tell you the reason why they do what they do is because they went on a two-year mission. Yeah, so if you're a Mormon, you go on a two-year mission, Okay, you're sent to Brazil or wherever. You're knock you're knocking on a thousand doors a week trying to sell a religion to people, and 999 of them are slamming the door in your face. Yep. And you've got to be polite and gracious and keep going. And those kids, they come back to Utah or wherever they live at 21. They're ready to take on the world. Couldn't agree more. I, I couldn't agree more. I I really genuinely believe in the same way that parents think about sending a child to school, um, you know, more progressive parents think about establishing nonprofit give back DNA. Other parents think it's travel or sport the way many parents think we're gonna put our kid in sport. Right. I genuinely believe the notion of lemonade stand, knock on doors and try to wash cars, yes. getting into that place of no, no, no. And then when they say yes, I mean, my friend Robbie Turnick, big shout out to him is reminding me that 70% of our childhood, first to eighth grade, because that's when we hung out before I moved, like 70% of the summer was washing cars, selling yeah. lemonade. In the winter, it's slow. Yes. I'm trying to rally everybody to shovel. And so it's a no, no, no. And then when somebody says yes, you have to shovel snow for 20 minutes instead of sledding and hot chocolate. And, and that formed me, and I'm the extreme, but a little bit of it a little bit of it, I think could really help a lot of kids. I really do, I, I completely agree. And, and I think that, and look, I'm a parent, I know you're a parent, I'm not a perfect parent. I'm not, you know, I, I don't stand up and say, this is the model, and I, I screw up a lot. You know, I, I, there are times where I find myself coddling my kids too. Yeah, but I, mean, I really do try and be mindful of this idea that they need to experience loss and failure. And, you know, my kids played baseball before the pandemic and, they would really lose their, you know, they'd lose their minds when they when when they lose the games. And I would say that's part of the game. Like if you are an amazing baseball player, you're failing seven times out of ten at the plate, and you're amazing, you know. Um, which is why Hall I of actually, Fame. yeah, Hall, Hall of Fame. Fame. You're a Hall of Famer. You're failing seventy percent of the time, which is why I think baseball is a great sport because it's a game of failure. Um, but you know, you know, I, you know, it's funny because of the batting 300 and so hard, but this is what's great about sports and why people love it. Hockey missing the net, football dropping the ball, basketball is, I mean, shooting percentages, are you kidding me, right? You know, at least 50% of the time, you know, and, and then some. And so I, I just, 
I, it's a, I'm definitely passionate about, from a good place, because I want kids to grow up to be happy, and I do think learning to lose early on is a blessing. Yes, and also learning to kind of take, take control and have some autonomy. You know, that's why I agree with you that getting kids to, 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 to build enterprises, even if it's a lemonade stand or a cookie stand, which, which my kids do, you know, obviously pandemic era makes it harder, but, um, you know, that they, they walk away with 20, 30, 40 bucks. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, that's- and, then, and then watching what they do with it, right? Do they want to buy a toy? Do they want to save it? Do they want to give it away? It just gives you great insight. Yeah. You know, I think giving kids freedom, because again, I think back to communism and capitalism, you know, because I was born in one and flourished in another, you know, this is a freedom, capitalism, you know, USA, USA. Meanwhile, parents spend an enormous amount of time keeping their kids in boxes. Yeah. You know, again, I, I don't know how you grew up, but we, we, we grew up in the era where you just went outside in the summer and that freedom right. mattered. And now, you know, it just isn't that way. And it's weird because, you know, when, when we were kids, like we would ride our bikes everywhere. That was my mode of transportation. I rode all over the San Fernando Valley on my, on my BMX bike, you know, yep. um, I'd go to Seven Eleven with friends and we'd buy candy and, and, um, same with me, BMX bike to Krausers, same yeah, thing, just right? the Jersey version. And, and now, um, it's much safer. America's a much safer country, much, you know, far fewer kidnappings, et cetera. And we're so much more protective over our children. It, it well, doesn't make sense. Well, it makes a lot of sense. It's the, 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 and you know this better than most people, n the news coverage and, and ratings and fear and yes. tune in like, and you and I grew up with America's most wanted being a hit show. And you know, it's not super complicated, right. you know, the, the tone and tenor of what was covered um, on the news changed. Yeah. And, and that scared. You know, you know, a lot of a lot of people are very confused how effective fear can be. Yeah. You know, and I think we see that play out in modern politics around the world, not just in America. And I think, you know, it's it's um this is where the cocoon, the your four walls as a family really, really matters. Yeah. There's actually a really interesting TED talk by Michael Shermer about that very point. And he argues that the things that we fear, um, we fear because because um they're discussed or they're talked about. Actually, you know, we, we're scared of shark attacks. Shark yeah, sharks attacks are and incredibly rare, yeah, right? right. Jaws, More people die in the bathtub. Jaws, Jaws. Right. I mean, I, I talk about airplanes versus driving. I mean, like, you know, my mom is still scared when I fly, which is always. And I'm like, mom, you should be scared when I leave the house driving. <laughs> you know, like, I'm with you. Like, we need uh, to do a better job I, I, I talking about it in a way that, we need to find a way, you know, I can't believe this guy. Literally this morning I woke up and said, I, I, you know, maybe it's this WGN thing, right? There's this, what is it, News Nation? There's a new play, you've seen this? Yeah. I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, man, I really, really, really think, because I think pendulums swing in society, I think there's a real opportunity for a 24-hour news network that is based on positivity, not, not delusion, not delusion, but I believe in life you find what you're looking for and there's enormous amounts of beauty and good going on all the time. And I think there needs to be a scaled outlet. Yeah, I mean, if, 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 if that could be the answer, that would be great. I mean, I, I worry that we're living in such a disaggregated time. You know, you think about information 
I mean, think about think about this for a minute. In in the 15th century, okay, um, you know, uh, Gutenberg comes up with the, the 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 printed press, and all of a sudden, hallelujah, people can get a copy of the Bible. He can print it. He can distribute yep. it. But it takes 400 years. 500 years for universal literacy really to, to kind of grow across Europe. Okay. So, so the, the speed and scale at which information, you know, grows and develops is fairly manageable for the human mind. Well, over the last 20 years, we've gone from dial up internet to Snapchat, to TikTok, to social, to, to instant, you know, communication and information that is almost impossible for us to absorb very quickly. And it's happened on such a just an insane time scale that you it's not surprising to me that there's so much disruption in the world. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. In 2002, I was sent to Afghanistan to cover that conflict. And NPR at the time had a house there that uh, we used. It was like our where we lived. And we had guards and, and translators and drivers. They were all Afghans. And one night, um, I'm, I get go downstairs to get a cup of, co uh, cup of co water. And I can see the the back house where the the translators and the guards are all hanging out, and I could see a TV flickering. Now re remember, this is a population of people who had never had any outside influences. There was no satellite television. Yep. There were no yep. outsiders. You know, they hadn't seen women. They were watching satellite television because we had a satellite. And what were they seeing on satellite television? Half naked German porn one nine hundred numbers. Now imagine how disruptive that moment was right for that society. And I'm not saying, you yeah, know, you're not making judgment. You're talking about information. Go ahead. And, and, and it, it speaks to this idea that we have been kind of inundated with information at a scale that we're, we don't have any precedent for, you know, I not, agree more. right. The question becomes what's foundational in one's DNA and upbringing in how they decide to, synthesize information, right? I'm, I'm gonna go non-political, I'm gonna go in a different direction. I see the internet and I'm informed in 1993, four, five, six, that there's this internet thing. I'm surrounded by liquor store executives, cause that's, you know, liquor store executives that was being very kind. People that owned or managed liquor stores in New Jersey, cause that was the cocoon I was in with my dad's world. I see this internet thing as the thing that is gonna change my family's life. The 80 other people in that cocoon that I lived in saw it as the great waste of time that my dad shouldn't even let me waste my time on that. And they literally made fun of my dad for letting me build the website that would go on to change his life. That to me is no different than mass information. It, you know, people, I mean, look, we have deep fake brewing at scale, it's already happening, yeah. and it's gonna be at scale. What that means is the thing that has affirmed information to us for the last 100 plus years, video, will now be debated as fake always, Yeah, which will then lead back to the human spirit. And that is going to be very fascinating to watch. I, I think that's right, and it, to your point about the pendulum swinging, I, I, I have to believe that that happens because I think that the pendulum has swung so far in one direction now that um, that I don't think a lot of us like what we see. And I think a lot of us want to see um, a, a more honest, equitable, and fact-based world. The, the uh, issue is right now we're in the place of blaming everybody but ourselves. Yeah. 
you know, right now we have enjoyed, like watching people blame Facebook as an empty pipe and, and thinking that is any different that like, like it's amazing to watch the surface level conversation even by deep intellectual individuals that don't have any, that have not gone past, if Facebook disappears off the face of the earth, it's laughable that people don't understand that humans intend to communicate what they want to communicate and more importantly, humans deciding to see what they want to see, whether that's on Reddit or a forum or search engines or a one-off website. Or Fox News. Or Fox News or CNN or, or News Nation or, the, or their neighbor's opinion uh, or during a coffee conversation. Like this is the greatest era of lack of accountability and, uh, and we're gonna have to go through that pain. Yeah, and the question is, how can we how can we resolve it? And I I don't know the answer to it, um, but we have. Well, to. I can tell you one thing: it comes far more in the sense of dialogue than it does to cancel culture. And right now, we're in a place where people politically in the U.S. But I but I want everybody who's listening because it's a global audience to understand: this is to me not a Donald Trump Joe Biden conversation we're having. There is enormous movements to nationalism and different conversations all over the world. Back to the place I come from, Eastern Europe is going through a very intriguing transformation. My homeland of Belarus is doing the reverse. They're trying to push out their dictator of 26 years. Yeah. Uh, and then there's just a million other variables of, meanwhile, you have an entire Gen Z world that is feeling connected to each other in a way that we've never seen before. You've got blonde girls in LA in love with co Korean boys that are look like you know, in sync and you're leading to just incredible dynamics. Yeah. And I think here's where I wanna go with it, which is what's the positive of this, which is the following. If you're able to understand, and I think everybody should get this book because I've been following, as most of you know, I don't consume things, I consume people consuming things. And the sheer joy and value that Guy's program has brought to the table over the last four years to, to the masses and to people I respect, um, and just his background and communication style has me very hyped for this book. So I think everybody should go and get that guy. When does this come out? Comes out September 15th, available Vayner. everywhere. So like like you always know Vayner Nation with me, like I always say, buy it before the date it comes out. So go to Amazon or wherever you want right now and, and get it. But I think, I think, believe it or not, 99% of the world is seeing this. 95% of the people around you right now are seeing this as doomsday and I'm moving out of the country and we're all gonna die. And this, I view it as ungodly levels of opportunity for you to bring happiness to yourself or to your children. Because think of it this way. If a communication infrastructure has come along in your lifetime that is able to completely disrupt the universe, in that there means to be so much opportunity. And if you choose to look half glass full, and go micro about the things you can control versus waiting to react to the things that you can't, all of a sudden up pops a rose out of the concrete. And I hope, and I hope you can get that from the last seven or eight minutes instead of where I know 98% of the minds went. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And, um, and I love that because I think that we don't have any other choice but to see it that well, way. Well, that's right. We, we have to do it, right? Like, what is it that gets me out of bed in the morning? I've got two children. It's nine and eleven, and I didn't bring them into the world to leave them a, a, a world that was worse off. Like we have no choice. We have got to solve our enormous, enormous Earth scale, global scale challenges. From, you know, beginning with with 
climate change, and then everything else kind of filters down from there. But, you know, in the United States, we've got huge equity challenges and in, in, in social justice and racial injustice um, questions to really grapple with. Around the world, you talked about Belarus, and I hope they can get rid of Lukashenko because he has been sitting there for 30 years. Um, you know, you, 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 we talk about na- the resurgence of nationalism in countries all around the world. Um, these, we have to hope. And by the way, all- you're educated in politics, obviously. You know, the rise of that leads to historically very not nice things like war at scale. And genocide. That's right. And so to me, these, but I want to remind everybody, because these are heavy topics, over the last, Guy, you love this, over the last month, 40 of acquaintance, business associates, and friends have said the exact quote, it's never been this bad. Mm-hmm. And then I go into my, and I was a bad student, except I was always good at history, and I realized later in my life, it's because I love pattern recognition. I use it for business, and it came natural to me with history. And I said, you know, literally, this has happened 40 times in the last 100 days. Gary, it's never been this bad. And I reply, you mean like the civil war? Like, you know, like we are very, we have had a very good run in the globe for the last 30, 40, 50 years. And I wanna remind people that it has been this bad. There has been the depression. There has been a civil war in America. There's been multiple world wars and that's modern warfare. Go back further than that and it gets really gnarly. I, I think we need to contextualize. I understand that things are heavy, but I actually have to remind you that there are, you're, if, when you, if you were lucky enough to talk to your grandparents and great-grandparents, they navigated very difficult times in comparison. And, uh, and I think we need to be up to the challenge. I, I agree with you. And I think the other, the, to, to add to that, I think we have this really privileged position where we can learn the lessons from those difficult moments. I mean, there are a lot of parallels between what's happening today and what happened in the 1930s in Europe, um, a lot of parallels. And I think if we took some time to educate ourselves about those parallels, we can really figure out a way how to navigate out of it and how to avoid the inevitable, you know, some of the inevitable things, that, things that seemed in- inevitable in the 30s, which led to war and conflict and, and mass destruction. You know, I think we are at a precipice now in world history where we do have the tools to to develop more empathy, right? And, and, and we have the ability to communicate across cultures, across boundaries, in ways that were just unimaginable to our parents and grandparents. And those tools can be used for horrible, evil things too, but those tools can be used for incredible, positive, powerful, um, powerful things as well. And yeah, that's I, where- I, I wish people leveled up and realized whether you, you know, and I, I, I have so many friends that see the world on both sides of the aisle in America. And I just, I just remind them all the time of like, look, if you're canceling your friends and relatives that don't see America the way you do, that will always, always, always lead to bad for your children because nobody's gonna force 50% of the other side to, like this only gets resolved by getting closer to the middle for both sides. Right now, that's just not the momentum. It's not the momentum, no. Um... And, and the I, parallels are incredible in business, Brack, to bring it back to, which is, which is if you don't know how to communicate to your customers, to your employees, or to your bosses, it is always going to lead to somebody losing, whether that's you or them for that matter. And so highly recommend, you know, compassion, sympathy, compromise as things that work not only in business, but in life. And you know what, Gary, and you know this, 
I have a chapter on, on this in my book. I mean, the, the, the founders that we look for on the show are kind. We look for people who are kind, you know, and kindness is, um, and it sounds hokey and not to me, brother. It's so simple. It's so simple. You know, what's funny. funny? I have a family that's very split, you know, because just flat out the circumstances of my family has family. uh, I have one side of, not even one side. I have a lot of cousins, relatives. It's very obvious to me that kindness is very easy for me because it is my natural DNA. But I do believe that people that are hurting with their own voice, with themselves, kindness is impossible. Because what ends up happening is you the misery loves company or the dragging down or the distribution of the pain you feel inside of you onto somebody else is a coping mechanism of how to get the poison out of your system. And I, you know, to me, kindness is not hokey. I think kindness is the coolest, most admirable, most important component to business and life. On the flip side though, I would challenge and have started talking to a lot of friends of like, I don't think kindness is easy if you're in pain. I think it's actually, it's right. You see what I mean? It's easy for me and I need to be compassionate and empathetic that it comes easy to me and then be aggressive to be empathetic to those that it doesn't come, it's back to like people that say you're shitty on social. I always feel compassion. I'm like, you are in such a bad place that you wanted to come to my page and tell me I suck. Wow, you must have, like, I I don't have the time to go to people I admire and say, you're doing great, let alone to go to somebody (laughs) and actually spit venom. So, you know, wow, you're in a real bad, kindness is hard to you and I feel bad for you. And let me figure out a way to create dialogue that might create a little movement towards a little more happiness. Yeah, I love that. I and and I'm going to employ that strategy next time somebody writes "you suck" on my one of my social media <laughs> pages. Guy, guy, it's led to the biggest happiness for me because yeah. you know you know a little bit about me. Like when I hit this will make sense to you. I hit the social media scene early, and the early 2006 seven Twitter was very Nirvana. Like I laugh about how people view Twitter now. Yeah, it was Hippieville. Yeah. And I came in and did a little bit of business and everyone's like, this guy. And so I did feel a little bit of pushback early on. And it was through dialogue that made me such a big part of the Web 2.0 community because I was listening. I was like, oh, don't talk about how Twitter can sell wine. I see, you see that as a bad thing because you're going for a much bigger thing. I respect that. Look, I'm trying to feed my family. This is the perspective up. And it really helped me early on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're you're so right. Kindness is not easy. It is a choice, um, and it it can be a struggle for a lot of people. And I, I, I think that's right. But it also it's also important to remember that it's free. It doesn't cost anything, and the return on that behavior is, I think, bigger than any financial investment you can make. Agree. And it's been an unbelievable episode. I. Uh... I really, I'm really glad I said yes to this. I've been very, very head down, you know, all my friends and contemporaries that kind of want exposure for their projects. I'm like, come on with tea with Gary V. We do it for 10 or 15 minutes. But when this uh, email came across intuitively, I was like, you know what, let's get an hour. Let's, Thank you know, you. I haven't done an interview in a while. And, uh, and I'm really glad I did. And I'm really optimistic and hopeful for your book and continued success with the show. And, uh, and I wish you nothing but health. Thank you, Gary. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, episode's over. Please leave a review and subscribe up on Apple. It would mean a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to me. Thank you very much. 
Thanks, Gary. Today's highlighted review is Real Resilience episode by Yarny. I loved the last Real Resilience episode. From Gary's inspirational stories of how he made it, to his geopolitical review, and most importantly, his realistic outlook on the world we are all living in today, and how to stay optimistic amidst it all. I know nothing will stop Gary from succeeding. Thanks, Gary. Keep those reviews coming. We could highlight yours next.